Hey everybody, welcome to episode 38 of Literary Disco, Summer Vacation Essays. Today's episode in two parts. We'll begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to choose a book at random from our bookshelf and discuss it. And then we will talk about two essays regarding summer vacation trips. Once More to the Lake by E.B. White, and A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. How's the end of summer working out for you? Well, I'm, I'm a little blue, frankly, because the last time we saw each other, we were all together. We were in, in oh. person. <laughs> and now I feel like we, it's like it was a great summer vacation, and we all saw each other, and we hung out, and now it's like we're getting letters in the mail, and it's like it's not the same. Well, I personally don't miss you guys at all. I barely remember you. But we had we had a great time at our live show. There was I don't know was about five hundred people there. Is that what you guys would say? <laughs> at least twelve hundred. Over a hundred people. There's over a hundred people standing inside of a very nice Barnes and Noble in uh, in Los Angeles. We were given um, a scat of baked goods by people. That was sweet. And by sweet, I mean in the oh that was hella sweet. Not sweet as in that was nice. I mean that was awesome. Uh, Ryder got a, uh, a knitted finger puppet. I saw that. Yes, a Day of the Tentacle Finger Puppet. That was awesome. Someone gave me a copy of Interstellar Pig. That was the highlight for that me. That was very cool. That's right. A real book that exists. Uh, and I think that same person had me sign of Mice and Men, which was a little weird. And then I've just gone ahead and done dropping signings at other Barnes and Nobles to sign of Mice and Men. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I wrote this. I don't know if, uh, if anyone else has claimed it, but yeah, I wrote it. Yeah, but really, it was a great time, and we thank everybody who was able to be there. And we know a lot of people couldn't make it because it was the summertime and also far away. So we'll we'll do it again someday. Someday. Dot dot dot. Well, we uh, we asked the world for a little uh, bookshelf roulette help this week. So uh, let's uh, let's take a look at Twitter and see what uh, what they've offered us for for numbers. Julia, do you want to explain how bookshelf roulette works again? Sure. Is that because you don't know how? It works? I, 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 I had Twitter give us numbers, and I'm not sure if they correspond to anything. Okay. The first number is a number from one to four, and that corresponds with the corner of our bookshelf. Okay, so the I got upper that right. left hand corner of the bookshelf is one, so the top right hand would be two, and then clockwise around. Gotcha. And then um, the second number is how many bookshelves we count up or down, depending on what corner we're at. So if we start oh. at the at number one, which is the top left uh, corner. And then we get, like, number two, we count two shelves down. Okay. And then finally, the third number is how many we count over, left or right, from our starting point. How many books we count over. This is the really exciting part. Oh, I did it correctly then. Okay, cool. Yep. I thought there might be a fourth number, like, how to pick the bookcase itself, but I guess that's not true. For me, that's usually just running around doing whatever I haven't done in a long time. All right. Well, let's... Uh, that part happens in my head. Let's take a look at uh, someone named... Uh, Validating Quip, who goes by Nope, 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 offered us the following numbers. Three, four, and 34. Wow, 34. We got a high number there. All, All right. right, so three, bottom right corner, four shelves up, 34 books over. All right, three, three four. four. Got it. I'll be back in a minute. Goodbye. All right, so everybody's back from their bookshelf roulette. I did not land on something incredibly interesting, so why don't I go first and we'll just kind of get it out of the way. But maybe you guys have something really good to say about this book. I landed on Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Um, oh, uh-huh. It's actually a book that includes Dim- Demion? 
Demion, which is another book I oh, never love, read. Oh, love, yeah, love both of... Demion, great. Love them. Okay, do you guys say Herman Hess, or do you say Herman Hesse? I say Herman Hess. I, I don't say him because I've never read him. You never have. Okay, I read Siddhartha, no. I read Siddhartha. when I was, I think, a, a freshman in high school, and I read it in one day, because it's very short, but I remember actually loving it, you know, as the sort of introduction to a lot of the ideas of Buddhism and whatnot, but I haven't reread it, and I... I have a feeling it wouldn't really hold up. What do you guys think? Or what do you think, Julia, since you I read think it? it would not. Yeah. Um, I read it while hiking in Thailand. So, because it was a very small and light book to carry. And it also seemed appropriate and, when you're right. a lot of Buddhists around. Exactly. On a journey. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't really remember it. I just remember feeling like, huh, yeah, I read that now. Yeah. Okay. Did this either of you me. ever read uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yes. yes. And that, I remember loving it. I remember loving it. I can't tell you a single detail about it. Like, I remember, like, there was some, it was a summer day that I, I read it, you know, cover to cover. And I got, I was probably 14. I got down with it. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to carry this book with me wherever I go if I go hiking through Thailand. And uh, I don't really remember any single detail about that book. It's a very strange book. And um, to be honest, I don't remember much of it either. You know, and I I felt the same way. Like, it was one of those kind of along with On the Road and, like, you know, it was, like, this almost philosophy, but, like, really kind of... I actually, that book has more philosophy. That book has more clear philosophy in it than, you know, Kerouac or whatnot. But it still is about, like, the open road and how much America sort of lost its way. And I don't know. I, I, I don't think it, I would like that again if I read it. But But you like On the Road. I do, but I like, talked about on this this podcast, how I've sort of gone through my loving, hating, and then rediscovering and appreciating Kerouac. It's been a, that's been a full cycle that took a lot yeah. of time. Um, you know, the, the thing about Siddhartha that was interesting is I, I actually took a couple different Buddhist classes in uh, college. And I remember just being weirded out by how much I already knew, like the story of the Buddha because I had read this mm -hmm. book. Um, yeah. and, and that's the part that I'm not sure that I, because I don't understand, I don't quite understand the project of the book. He's a German writer and he, I don't know if he really was a Buddhist or what, but he decided to sort of reappropriate and personalize the story of the Buddha and, and tell that again. Like, I'm just not clear on what it is or what it was exactly, but it's an incredibly popular book, right? Like a, a lot of, I, I think a lot of yeah. American teenagers end up mm -hmm. reading Siddhartha. Um, and I feel like he won the, some, like, I almost want to say the Nobel Prize. You won the Prize. Nobel Prize, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like every book that I've read about Buddhism vanishes from my head. Which <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's, that's part of the process. Yeah, maybe it's that's the thing. Vessel. It just becomes it's this ephemeral thing. You, yeah, you, you enjoy the journey. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love You were in the present. You need it. to keep reading them. Maybe stay in the present. <laughs> stay in the present. <laughs> Uh, what about well, like the um, Tao of Pooh? Did you read that? Yeah, we Did that stay that. with you? We talked about that. Yeah, but that's Taoism. That's not Buddhism. Right. They I'm just talk thinking about of Buddhism a lot. But I'm thinking about all of these sort of religions that I, I had a vague interest in when I was 16. I was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into Taoism. I'm gonna get into Buddhism. Uh, I'm I'm gonna look into fundamentalist Christian. Oh no, I'm not. No, I'm not gonna do that, that one. Um, and and or just any of the New Age stuff. Like there's that whole period of time that I had where I was reading all this new age stuff because probably my sister Karen was reading it and I was stealing her books, you know, stuff on like 
past life regression and then Taoism and all this other stuff. Flowers in the yeah, attic, that great new age classic. <laughs> the new age classic <laughs> of rape and, and incest, flowers in the attic. But I, whenever I think of uh, Siddhartha, I think of that, like I think of that bookshelf that we had in the house that, you know, my sister would have of all of her things where she was trying to find herself, books she was trying to find herself on. Yeah, see, I went to a super hippy-dippy high school, and so they actually had us read this in our in our freshman year, and all I remember is uh, my teacher laying down like a string on the ground and being like, so most of us think of our life with ups and downs, and he makes the string into like this, you know, graph, so it's going up and down and up and down, plotting these lines, he's like, you know, sometimes you're happy, and then sometimes you're sad, and then you gain more happiness, he's like, but what if, and he takes a string and pulls it into a circle, it is more like a circle, and I just that I remember that image. <laughs> oh god! And then I was reading Siddhartha, like that is that was you know the beginning at, of high school for me. At at any point did this man touch you or your bathing suit covers? Well, here's or... what's crazy about this guy: he was 24 years old. Like oh, that's god. what blows my yeah, mind. Is like he was this, and he already had a, a kid and was married. So in my mind, he was like equivalent to my parents. But when I look back on right. it now, it's like I was 13 years old and he was. 11 years older than me that's all and like i think about being 24 and you know teaching at this tiny school out in the middle of the woods and like i mean we were a classroom of 10 kids like yeah. it's just such an interest i mean and he was great i mean he taught me how to write an essay and i read so many great books because of this guy so i mean he was a wonderful teacher but yeah in retrospect it's like yeah of course he had like cheesy new agey ideas he was in you know sebastopol california teaching a bunch of hippie kids and you know he he was probably a little bit out there and he was only 24 like he's he was probably just like, graduated likely from college stoned out of his problems. mind also but you know what Fourteen-year-olds need to be exposed to that. I do too. I think that's great. Oh, yeah, that's great. I, agree. I don't regret it. I at think all. that's great. No. When I was fourteen, I saw the craft, and then I went to Salem and thought about being <laughs> a Wiccan, and then I immediately decided not to do that. Uh, the craft was that was like the year the craft came out. I remember seeing that and thinking. Yeah, witchcraft. I could get into that yeah. if there's hot chicks well, involved. It was around yeah. the same time totally. like the, the Paradise Lost guys were getting arrested. Yeah. Like Satanism, yeah. like Satanism and Wiccan. Like it was all kind of cool. Blair Witch was coming out in a couple of years. It was so it was cool. cool. Everything was cool yeah. about that stuff. And then, of course, at the end, it turns and someone becomes evil, and you know, then that chick it shows up in, okay, in almost famous, and she's never a Wiccan again. And... <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Well, I okay. have I have an equally amazing book to writers. Um, it's a book I've never read and doesn't belong to me. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I have a wife, Wendy, who shares my bookshelves with me, grudgingly on my part. And uh, so I landed on one of her books, one, a book that she read called Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Oh, and people love that book. That people lose their shit about this what book. Is it? And there I was know nothing about it. It's a it's a romantic fantasy, I guess. Um, well, I'll I'll read the the paragraph on the uh, on the book jacket. In a remarkable debut, vigorous, eloquent, and wholly original, Diana Gabaldon fuses a wry modern sensibility with the drama and passion of the 18th century, and vividly brings to life a heroine whose journey through time forces her to make an agonizing and fateful choice. So there was one year where my wife, my sisters, my nana, my nana's caregiver, everyone in like the extended world that I was part of that was a, a female that was somehow related to me were addicted to this book and then like it's 15 sequels and they were all like 900 pages long, wow. these just giant tomes. And what I gleaned from overhearing their conversations is that the heroine... Uh, who, according to the book jacket's name is Claire Beauchamp Randall. 
Um, a former British nurse on holiday in Scotland with her husband, looking forward to becoming reacquainted with the war's long separation, finds some magical rocks in Scotland. And, like in um, all great fantasy, falls through a shift in time and space through these rocks to uh, 1743. Uh, And there she falls in love with somebody, and it's some fraught thing. But, like, there was was just my wife and everyone was just talking about these people like they were real, and it was like a huge thing. There was one Thanksgiving where... So Wendy actually liked it. Oh, yeah, she loved it. She loved it. That's cool. There was one Thanksgiving where, like, everyone, all the women were sitting on the sofas reading these books, and we're all like, all the guys like, so what's going on? Why is anyone talking to us? And why are they all reading these giant books? That's so books? funny because so, I've never heard of it. So what, what year are we talking about? Like This book originally came out in uh, 1991, but I don't think Wendy started reading them until the mid-90s, probably like 1995, yeah, yeah. 96, 97, so somewhere in there. So it's probably like a complete series by now. Oh yeah, there's like there's like ten books, wow. and I think they're making a movie out of it. Huge, massive, best-selling novels by this woman Diana Gebeldon, and she like even when the web was just starting out, basically she had a huge web presence, and her fans, I believe, refer to her as herself. <laughs> well, it's just weird. this very strange subculture <laughs> that I was with it till then. Yeah, it's the very strange. Thing is a little, yeah. I, it's very weird, and I think like they know about her husband, and she lives in Arizona. And, you know, she just has this huge following. But the thing about these books that I find particularly upsetting is that, so her last name is Gabaldon. So on our bookshelves, she takes up a lot more space than my own books do. And it really sort of bothers me that she's got... She's got the prime real estate in the G section. And the covers are are beautiful. They are... See, there's a broken clock and some flowers and... Oh, wow. So you guys have the hard covers. Oh, we don't fuck around. We, I think we wow. have a bunch of signed ones, too. Do you guys ever get the feeling that, like, and we're, this is this is a good intro, intro discussion because I know we're going to do a fantasy book on the show in a couple weeks, but or a couple episodes, but um, do you guys ever get the feeling that fantasy is just one of those genres where if it's just good enough, it does really well? Like, if the book is just just good enough... To, like, hook you into the story. I, like, people are willing to overlook, like, really thin characters. I mean, I'm, I, this is not true of Game of Thrones, because I read those and I was like, wow, this is actually incredibly well-written and nuanced, and, and the characters are really... But most of the time when I hear about science fiction and fantasy books, which I kind of put in the same category, I I often wonder if, like... I mean, I have never read these books, so I don't know. But I feel like... I and these are more romance the, than, than anything my else. My answer is what I think we should talk about on our future show. The whole value system is different of what makes a good book and what makes a good bad book bad. You're measuring different things. Right, because if they do, like, really creative, in, incredible world exactly. creation, for instance, that's more interesting, and that's what you're sort of reading the book for as opposed to realism of, you know, human interactions. Or But I, I think that that standard exists in all literature. I mean, when we talked about Tampa, we invariably ended up comparing it to Lolita. Right. Only on because of subject matter, and we're saying, well, you know, Nabokov does this, and Nabokov does that. Well, that's the difference between one of the greatest novels of our time and what is, in essence, you know, sort of pulp fiction. And you know, what what is good enough for anything? You know, it, we will we will watch popcorn movies with the same fervor and excitement than that 
we watch, you know, Schindler's List or something. You know, as long as it appeals to us. I don't know. I, th- I think casting a net on a particular genre and saying things are successful just if they're good enough probably undervalues that fact that there's a lot of really great books that be- right. don't ever become popular, that are wonderfully written and wonderfully conceived and for whatever reason don't capture right. the imaginations of readers or don't have the marketing behind them or whatever. Well, let's talk about that a lot more on our future show because I'm really excited to talk about fantasy. So speaking of fantasy, that's a good segue into mine. Um, mine is not a fantasy book or a novel at all. Um, so you guys know that I deal with a lot of authors and writers at the Mark Twain house. Have I ever told you who my favorite one was of all time as a human? No, it's not Stephen King. I know that you said Deepak Chopra was a little handsy <laughs> and, and tried to kiss you, but um, I don't... I never said that. It is the my favorite person that I've ever met who is a very famous writer is Miss Manners. She is... Who? So, do you guys not know who Miss Manners is? Nope. That okay. was no. that, that oh, ringing silence that you heard. Was yeah. Both of us okay. going, should so we know So, she's basically an advice columnist like Dear Abby. Um, okay. Her real name is Judith Martin, but she has a syndicated advice column. And um, it's, it's regular, you know, just like Dear Abby. I'm sh- they're competitors. You can Google around. Um, I'm sure tons and tons and tons of our listeners have heard of her. Although, of course, obviously, like, this kind of old-fashioned advice column is a dying form. Um, right. And But has she always been Miss Manners? Or is she, like, like the fi- is she like Doctor Who? Is she, like, the fifth Miss Manners? No, she is, like, the Miss Manners. The one and only. Okay. Um, All right. And the reason that I loved her so much is that... She was so she polite. Actually. Actually. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Except for when the black people showed exactly. up. She really did not like black people. Fashion. Okay. All right. I don't want to cast dispersions on Miss Manners. Um, just no. her writing is so... Um, hilarious and biting as she gives etiquette advice and her etiquette advice is more basically just from the point of view of like a fed up person um and she's just a a super talented essayist trapped probably by her own choosing in this kind of form so she she's just like has hilarious um hilarious ways of thinking about etiquette and putting everything even though she's a cool old lady so um when I got... In- How old is she? She's in her 60s. Um, so when I got engaged, somebody gave me um, Miss Manners' Guide to a Surprisingly Dignified Wedding. And <laughs> it is goddamn hilarious, and I love this thing. Um, and basically her point of view on etiquette, we don't have to get into the whole thing, but her point of view on etiquette is not that it is a stuffy set of leftover traditions, but it's all about making the person or people that you're dealing with um, feel comfortable and happy. And that's what etiquette is for, and we have totally lost that. So in a wedding context, it is both hilarious and useful. So Does she provide, um, how to put this delicately, wedding night advice um, also? I think so. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, um, let's flip to that page. <laughs> okay. Didn't we get enough of this from Tampa? <laughs> have we learned nothing? Um, here, let me, let me um, I'll read you a little sample here. Um, okay. Dear Miss Manners, my fiancé and I are on a tight budget and are planning a small family-only wedding. My mother would like to throw us an engagement party, a work buddy wants to give me a shower, and I'd love to have a bachelorette party with my girlfriends. Many people that would attend these events would not be invited to the wedding. I've heard from several sources that to not invite these people to the wedding is the height of rudeness. Is that true? Do I really have to give up these special events because my fiancé and I can't afford a big wedding? Please help. Miss Manners says... 
Gentle reader, help with what? The notion that every bride is entitled to a series of parties? That people are happy to attend such events even if their presence is not sought for the wedding itself? So, and then she goes on <laughs> to... So basically she just says, bitch, please. Well, I mean, she she brings these like crazy wedding notions of the modern day back to their original idea of like, who are you doing this for? Why are you doing it? Right. But really it's, it's generally just hilarious. I mean, she also has a funny list of, where is it? Um, she has like a timeline. She has two alternative timelines for planning your wedding. And one is, um, is one dystopian. Please tell me one of them is a dystopian future. (laughs) Kind of. It's it's basically like the normal planning that people have to do. So here here we go. Six months before, take a romantic moment with your fiancé to plan your fantasy honeymoon. Figure out a way for others to pay for it. Five months <laughs> before, fight with a parent or friend with whom you hadn't, haven't yet fought, etc., etc. And then funny. she gives a normal, you know, rundown of bringing back to perspective. So I'm glad I landed on this book because it reminds me that I still get enjoyment out of these, like, huge ridiculous books that you wouldn't read cover to cover that I have laying around my house. And Miss Manners is cool, and you guys should all look up her her columns because they are a rabbit hole of hilarity and, and really good writing and good public thought. I'm a, I'm a super fan. The end. All right. And so you and she, you met her. She, yeah. she showed up in person. She gave a lecture. And she was a nice person. She gave a lecture. Oh. I wouldn't say she was nice. I would say she was smart. <laughs> But she was your favorite. I wouldn't say she was pretty, but she wasn't manly. <laughs> well, I think, it, you know, like, the, we always think, you know, that the number one quality we look for in, in women is, is, like, oh, how nice were they? But, like, no, she was, like, smart as hell about etiquette and very unapologetic about it. And she seems to be on some kind of mission to make people realize how crazy they're being. You know, the other day, I uh, can I tell a brief etiquette story? Sure. sure. The other day. I was uh, at an event, and uh, this involves someone that you know, Julia. This involves our friend Maggie. I was going to say, I was at an event, (laughs) and uh, after the event, I was standing out in front of the theater where we had shown a movie, and this woman came up to me and this other writer named Maggie, and professed to Maggie how big of a fan she was of Maggie's work, because she used to really hate her writing. And I said... Do you, you can't say that to someone. You, you can't just say, I hate your writing. You, you just, that's not, that's not right. You just can't say that. And she said, well, it wasn't that I hated the, her writing. I, I just, I really didn't like her or any of the topics that she covered. And I said, I said, why don't you just say, I hate every fucking thing you're passionate about. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. This was like a backhanded compliment because she was saying, I've come to now really love your work. It just, I used to uh, hate it. Is that or, what you're saying? Or appreciate it. Yeah. It was very strange. And That's I just horrible. said, you know, those are the thoughts that you can maybe keep inside of your head of, oh, I used to think you were shitty, but now I don't think you're shitty. You know what? Just let me believe that you always thought I was decent. Yeah. <laughs> that will make my life happier. Well, one thing that Miss Manners and I agree on is that the worst like quality of modern etiquette is that people think being honest is like the greatest, highest virtue of all time. Of let me say everything I ever thought because that's yeah. honest. Uh, like, I'm just being honest, I'm just being honest, rather than say the nicest thing. Yeah, I think salting your, your life with minor lies to save other people's feelings, that's a, that's a fine thing. You, you can do that. I agree. I mean, don't do it if you're, if you're running a, a world government or something, but, you know, in day-to-day interactions with people, you don't need to say, my 
God, you look fat. Jesus. Is that as... Do you still get zits? You gotta learn to exfoliate, sweetheart. You don't need to say that shit to people. Does she have any advice on people that mistakenly think other people are pregnant? Because I think <laughs> one of us... One of us has had a couple of those experiences. It could use a little, uh, little advice yeah, on how to, how to uh, remedy that situation. That's, uh, that's a story for another time, maybe. That's for a story now, for we'll move time. on to the end of summer vacation oh, with David God. Foster Wallace and E.B. White. Stick around. Oh. Welcome back to Literary Disco. It's Julia here. I'm here with Ryder and Todd. Hi, guys. Yo. This isn't Todd. Oh, Todd couldn't make it. The guy who does the voice from Scream decided to come. Oh, God. Well, we are recording this episode um, right at the beginning of fall, so we figured that we should do some back-to-school, my-summer-vacation-style essays, so if any of you actually have to write them as working adults... Then you might have some inspiration. <laughs> in, in what in what setting are working adults forced to return to their jobs at like you know Best Buy or something and be like, eh, yeah, uh, Jeff, I need to get an essay out of you on what you that did. Would be great. But we get it now through Facebook. Like you see everyone's vacation yeah. meal to meal and site to site. Yeah, but that's not that's not the same. You know, I want to know if you contemplated death, which is pretty much where we stand. With these two essays. So um, I picked out two classic essays from my friends here. Um, I picked E.B. White's Once More to the Lake, which was, I believe, originally published in Harper's Magazine. He is the same E.B. White who wrote Charlotte's Web and The Trumpet of the Swan, which I I have a feeling like in my brain takes place at this lake, by the way. And mm. um, he also is the Strunk of Strunk and White's Elements of Style. So he's, I mean, he's the White. Absolutely. Of White. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> they switched names. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the book. What a, you know what, though? What a cool dude E.B. White is. Like, when you think about it, I hadn't really considered the breadth of the fact that he did all of yeah, that. children's book. I still have my little slim elements of style. He should be much more famous than he is. You know, people usually think of him in one of these categories, but not all three. So that's why I mentioned the other things. And I um, always loved Stuart Little, too, by the way. I was a big Stuart Little fan when I was a kid. That's not him. Is yeah, it? it is. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote Stuart Little. Oh. Take that out. I don't want it to be known. <laughs> <laughs> keep, that keep that Julia's in. Julia's fallible. <laughs> that was Strunk who wrote Stuart Little. Oh, it was E.B. White as Strunk. <laughs> oh my God. Strunk oh tonight will be E.B. You know White. I, you know what I was thinking of? This is why I <laughs> sounded so horrified. I was thinking of the mouse and the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. oh I loved those too. Yeah. Yeah. Love the mouse and motorcycle. <laughs> Gotta love what those. What is the difference? Isn't, aren't so, they kind of the same? Like, what is Stuart Little? He's... He's a little mouse. Stuart Little was written much long, much yeah, earlier. Yeah, Stuart Little's a little mouse. The mouse of the motorcycle is a little mouse who also has a motorcycle. So that's a huge <laughs> difference. <laughs> yeah. Okay, anyway. All right, guys. I haven't even said the second It'd be like the yet. story of Jesus without <laughs> Jesus walking on water, basically. Which would just be the story of Buddha. Siddhartha. Yeah, it would be the story of Buddha. It was, right. right. But the, I mean, so the thing is, he, get, he gets a motorcycle is the thing. Uh, and then... Now, that's... Jesus on a motorcycle, I would read. That's Jesus on a okay. motorcycle, I would read too. That would be awesome. Actually, Jesus on a motor that's just then in the art of motorcycle maintenance now that we're getting into it. Well 
when you think about it, though, Jesus on a motorcycle, in its way, is also the Hell's Angels. When you sort of devolve it out, you look into the fallen angel. Yeah. On, but archetypically, arch, archetypally, we're talking about the same, it's the same story. Archetypically, it's the same we're story. talking about the same story. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Stuart Little is Jesus. Okay. I mean, when you get... Right. Well, and in that regard, I think when you look at Charlotte's Web, there's a, a fairly... <laughs> Concise allegorical relationship in that book to, to the right, life let's of let Julia introduce well. the next essay. What's the other essay? Okay. The second essay is <laughs> a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again by David Foster Wallace, which was also originally published in Har- Harper's about 40 years after E.B. White's essay um, about DFW going on a cruise to... Um, wait, where is it? I'm blanking out. The Caribbean. Caribbean? He goes on a big Caribbean cruise. Yeah. So David Foster Wallace going on a big Caribbean cruise. Um, And I picked them because they're both great. I think they're both great essays. They're definitely both classic essays, but they're wildly different. And um, they're both about what someone did on their summer vacation. So with that being said, you guys want to just dive right in? What would you think? Well, let, let me ask both of you an important question. Have either of you ever been on a cruise? I went on a Disney cruise when I was 17. <gasps> oh, my wow. God. 17 is a weird age to go on a Disney cruise. Yeah, because you're not quite old enough to go to the disco, and you can't gamble. So, basically, you're trying to steal alcoholic drinks and not end up accidentally having sex with some 50-year-old man. That's not what happened. <laughs> well, in my in my mind, that makes for a better story. What, what about you, Ryder? Have you ever been on a cruise, Ryder? I have a very long and weird cruise story, so I don't know if I... If we should get into it, <laughs> so, or I should you save were, it for later. Not on a cruise? I've been on two cruises in my life. Yes, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I, I, I'll go into it a little bit later if, when when we're talking about David Foster Wallace because I, I couldn't help but think of my experience, which was uniquely horrifying in, in specific ways. But I'll get into it once we, we're into the book. I think I I've been on two cruises also, but not. I went on a cruise when I was in college, and I went on a cruise right after college, and. Uh, they were horrifying. And I don't know why I went on the second cruise after going on the first cruise. I have no idea. <laughs> and so the important thing to know is that, in, for those of you who don't live in California, in California you can take what is basically a two-day cruise to Mexico where you're never more than, like, 20 feet from the coast on the Viking Serenade. And so you're it's basically just on a boat. It's a booze yeah, cruise. Just like on, it's just about drinking and dating. Yeah. And, yeah, and, gambling. It's, and it's like you leave L.A. at 9 o'clock on a Friday and you get back to L.A. Sunday night at 5 o'clock. All right, well, hold on. Let's. Let, why don't we cover Once More to the Lake first? Because I think that's going to yeah, be a much shorter discussion. Okay. And, uh, you know, these 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 essays actually, uh, are, as much as they're both about summer vacation, they're so different <laughs> that yes. I think so that, that Once More to the Lake is, well, first of all, Once More to the Lake is only about five printed out pages. I printed mine from the internet. Um, so it's much shorter. It's much, uh, it's a completely different style. E.B. White's language is just very you know, straightforward and, and it's also very straightforward in terms of what it has to say. I mean, he's very clear. Mm-hmm. Like I used to mm-hmm. go to a lake with my father. Now I'm taking my son on a, uh, on a trip to the same lake and I'm hoping things haven't changed too much. And then right. things haven't changed that much. And that's kind of the essay, right? I mean, I'm not, I, well, it's kind of the essay and it's, you know, it's the dawning on E.B. White's um, sensibility that not much has changed other than the fact that I am, pressing forward towards death right that i am now the father that i'm now the father exactly and so it's sort of a fascinating essay because it also kind of takes on this question of 
uh, modernity, mo modernity, mm -hmm. the modern time, yeah. but it's also extraordinarily old. But it it's the same essay. Someone could write this essay today about taking their child to a lake and you know being upset that what was once a great peaceful place is now wrecked by the sound of outboard engines and all this. You know, Do you sort think of, someone could write an essay like this today? I mean, they could, but I'm saying, would it? Would anybody care? Like that's this essay seemed kind of. Um, kind of old-fashioned, not just in terms of what it's writing about, but also in its approach to writing about something like this. You know, yeah. in the sense that he never names his son, for instance. Like, mm -hmm. he's just my boy or the boy. And I just wondered if, like, in a way it's kind of dated, um, just dated in terms of... I, I, it felt it felt simple to me and and simplistic I, in its and, and in some ways that's its strength and it's in that it's clear and um, and sort of pleasing to read and has this you know this feeling wash over you of like we've talked about before just nostalgia as a as a as a literary feeling or device is really good to to capture well and he does that but I don't know if it says much that I'm like I don't think I'm going to remember much about this essay tomorrow. Well, I, I think that I I. I really love this essay, and I, I think that these essays in comparison are really interesting, even though the length difference is going to make this a much shorter discussion, because I think E.B. White's style is so authoritative, mm. and David Foster Wallace's style is all about doubt. Right. So I actually think they're saying some very similar things, or at least dealing with very similar ideas of time and death and, you know humans imposing themselves on the world except E.B. White only takes five pages to do it because that's just <laughs> exactly what he's doing he's right. saying right. this is an essay about time this is an essay about the time he doesn't even he wouldn't even waste precious sentences saying this is an essay he just doesn't do that he mm -hmm. just goes right into this scene and I think that it's that it has a very shocking last sentence yeah. um, and that I think is the moment where it's basically his son pulls on a cold, wet bathing suit, which is something that I did this morning. So <laughs> it's it's a, a sensation that I think we all know. Yeah. And E.B. White compares it to, or he, what, what's the exact phrase? We As he buckled up. the swollen belt, suddenly my groin felt the chill of death. That's the right. end of the essay. So that, yeah, that beautiful double meaning there of basically having your balls encased in, like, freezing water mm -hmm. and also if just... If that's how I die, by the way, if that's the feeling I have at the moment of death, my entire life will have been for naught. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst <laughs> feeling in the world. It's just the absolute worst, particularly if but you have testicles. It's so beautiful, and, and I do think that someone could write this essay today. I think stylistically it would have to be different, or it would have to be a, a person already prominent um, in the literary landscape to get away with writing something so simple, which E.B. Right. E. White was. But I don't, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, there's, there's this wonderful line. I, I, I really like this essay, and I've always liked this essay, but I have, I have, um, I have a, particularly this time of year, um, a, an emotional attachment to quietly fishing at a lake. Um, I used to do it every summer with my with my grandfather and my uncles, my aunts, my cousins. We used to all go do it. And this time of year, I'm invariably swept back to thinking about those times. But there's this moment uh, in the middle of the essay where um, E.B. White is watching his son sort of dip his uh, rod in the water. And he says, There had been no years between the ducking of this dragonfly and the other one, the one that was part of my memory. I looked at the boy who was silently watching his fly and it was my hands that held his rod, my eyes watching. I felt dizzy, 
and didn't know which rod I was at the end of. And, you know, that's, that's that unique feeling of something happening and already feeling like a memory because it is like a memory you have. And I think that's, I mean, it, it's, it's not that different really than some of the things that we talked about when we talked about A River Runs Through It and the things that appeal to us in there. I think it's a subtle, a subtly important essay that is written in simple terms, but that reaches far past its subject matter. The thing that I like the most about this essay is the language. I mean, he's honestly one of my favorite writers of all time in the simplicity of it. And it's his writing so good, it, it tricks you into not noticing it. So the first couple sentences of the second paragraph, I took along my son who had never had any fresh water up his nose and had seen lily pads only from train windows. On the journey over to the lake, I began to wonder what it would be like. I wondered how time would have marred this unique, this holy spot, the coves and streams, the hills that the sun set behind, the camps and the paths behind the camps. And it goes on with this natural description, but it's just so conversational yet so elevated. It's It seems formal, and I think that's what makes it seem nostalgic. Mm-hmm. And it is nostalgic, but... I think it's okay for this essay to be nostalgic because it's about nostalgia. There's no way it couldn't be nostalgic. No. That's what it's going for. I mean, that's all it is about is nostalgia. Well, it's about nostalgia and about, you know, the the shifting roles of life. You know, where he says also, uh, I seem to be living a dual existence. I would be in the middle of some simple act. I would be picking up a bait box or laying down a table fork. Or I would be saying something and suddenly... It would be not I, but my father who was saying the words or making the gesture. It gave me a creepy sensation. I mean, it's, that's, we've all gone through that. We've all, we've all realized the passage of time. And I don't know, I, I think summer, because of it being an indelible demarcation of time, like when you're a kid, summer vacation is, bam, three months, and you're going and you're doing something, or you're playing outside or whatever it is. And it has it has a, a precise feel because there's weather that goes along with it. There's a timeline that goes along with it, so that you know the beginning and you know the end of that summer based on the events that you did. And I don't think, when you're a kid at least, there's another time that really feels like that. And I think that's that's sort of what he's talking about is that, you know, that sense of memory and time being about that certain Attached place, to a place and about, an experience. Uh, yeah, right. And I exactly. think that that's that's the power of a summer vacation, especially as a kid, is you know having a ritual or something that takes you out of your normal life and. You know, there's all these physical attachments. I love his description of the thunderstorm, too, at the end of the essay, when he just describes it and he does it in musical terms and the thunderstorm comes in. It's it's beautiful. Uh, a side note about this essay that I started kind of thinking about, what is it with fishing and literature? It's always so good. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what is it specifically about fishing that makes that lends itself so well to literature? Because you think about it, you have River Runs Through It, you have things like this but i just feel like there's a uh, moby dick is basically a fishing mm. story you know and i was thinking about okay so it's 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 great because it's pensive and reflective right it's like you have lots of time to mm-hmm. think so i think good fishermen yeah. probably also make good writers like i think that there's a parallel to like the skills that you require you to be a good fisherman or a woman is also the things that make you a good writer and then I was also thinking, well, it's all—it's a great physical activity, but it's not like constant physical activity because you don't—you don't know. There's a lot of writers that aren't like you don't know that many like great football players that were writers, also, right? Because they're—they're they're like 
they're trying to be as brainless as possible. Like that's their goal is to be in the moment and to not be thinking. Whereas fishing, you're, you're physical. And when you're physical, you have to be like slowing down time in your brain and being as aware as like what's happening. So it's like this strangely meditative physical activity. And then also we just have this great metaphor when you're dealing with a body of water of like surface, you know, mm-hmm. and reading the surface, which explicitly became the, the central metaphor of, of, of river runs through it. But it's like whenever you're looking at a body of water, it's true. When you fish, you're actually able to see deeper into the water than somebody who's not experienced, you know? So it's like, just like reading texts, you get better at reading them and understanding what's going on under the surface. Because like, I look at the most water surfaces and I've you know been fishing a bunch of times, but like, I used to get so much crap because I would just look out at the ocean. Like when I went deep sea fishing with my buddy Josh and I'd be like, oh, I don't see anything. And he'd be like, you don't see that there are, you know, three, you know, deep spots over there where lobsters are living. And and he would just be looking at the same thing as me. But he had trained himself to be able to look into the water in a way that I, you know, by the end of a week long fishing trip, I started to see these things. But it's just anyway, I just started having these thoughts while I was reading this essay. I was like, fishing is so good for writing. Like, they go hand in hand really well. But the, the thing is also is that the success or failure of a person fishing is predicated on chance, you know? Mm-hmm. And chance begets interesting consequence. So whether or not someone does or doesn't catch a fish is largely held up to luck. Right. Um, yeah, there's the skill of the fisherman, but if you don't, then you have bad luck and there's a consequence from it. If you do, you have good luck and there's a consequence from that. Right. And so it, it, I think it as a storytelling device, it imbues a story immediately with chaos, chance. Anything can happen. And that, I think that always leads to, I mean, it even leads to something like Life of Pi, you know? It, it's the same sort right. of thing. If I did this or this or this, mm-hmm. you know, something else is going to happen. Right. Um, Old Man in the Sea, Hemingway. Right. Mm-hmm. Speaking of boats. Hey, <laughs> hey look at that. Hell of a transition, hey. Julia. How about we get on one with David Foster Wallace, who goes on a cruise. So um, for our listeners who have not read David Foster Wallace before, um, he is in... No, just kidding. Yeah, (laughs) hang up. Get up, go out and buy something. Can you hang up on an iPod? He's, of course, most famous for fiction like Infinite Jest, but I'm going to say that in writerly circles he's more recognized for his amazing essays and nonfiction. Yes. Um, so he has a few major essay collections uh, but his first one was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again which this essay appeared in a shorter version appeared in Harper's and it's all about Harper's paying him to go on a cruise um, uh, a big box like luxury Caribbean cruise and to report on it. And the way that he writes is so complex and he uses a lot of footnotes to comment on his own commentary and his sentences can be a page long or more with all of his doubts and considerations and thoughts. So he covers everything in this essay from what it's like to buy the ticket to comedians to (laughs) various dancing activities to getting on and off the boat. He deals with every possible theme that he thinks that he can manage in this essay. So essentially his style is to very artfully and very colloquially cram in every thought in his head and argue with himself over the morality 
and the experience of going on this cruise. Would you guys say that's a fair summary? <laughs> yeah, that sounds summary. like a, a perfect assessment of it, yes. <laughs> it's it's very hard to describe. Well, it's gonzo journalism, yeah. right? I mean, he's sort of, David Foster Wallace represents a, a, like a new evolution in gonzo journalism. Um, I just, I mean, I've always loved him. He's really, he's so smart. I mean, that's what you get down to is that you're dealing with an intellect, a brain that is so big um, but he he's really has, like you said earlier, the sense of doubt and humility that he inserts into his essays that puts you on his side in such a wonderful way. Like, I just loved how in the beginning, you know, he basically opens the essay saying, like, I don't know why Harper's is doing this. They're sending right. $3,000 to send me on this cruise. I'm never going to give them a good essay. I don't know what they want from me. So he sort of positions himself as, like, not... And he he calls them explicitly, he calls them, like, East Coast snobby people. You know, so he's like, I don't know. They, they don't know what they're doing sending me out there. So he separates himself from his editors constantly throughout the essays. Like, this will probably get cut out. You know, that if, if the editors are any good, they'll cut this section out, but I'm going to write it anyway. But then he also positions himself as very distinct from like the other Americans that are on the boat with him. You know, he describes them in bovine terms and, and is mm-hmm. ashamed right. of them, but then also identifies with them at times. And, but so he's, he's clearly an outsider in, in both senses and which is the perfect essay position that he puts himself in. So, you know, you're, he's like this lost wayward traveler. He's like, he's not a complete snob, like the Harper's editors, but he's also not like just a run of the mill American having a good time on a cruise. He positions himself perfectly as this sort of thinking outsider in the midst of it. And, and it's really, and it's really powerful. And he does that with almost all of his essays. And, and this is probably the the clearest example of that because like one of his other great essays is he, you know, was sent to a porn convention to cover Mm -hmm. uh, a a porn awards in, in Las Vegas. And he does the same sort of thing where he's like, you know, he, he refers to himself as your correspondence because it was like him and a photographer that were sent to it. So he refers to himself as this sort of abstract person principle who's stuck in the middle of this weird assignment and in this crazy world of people. And it's, just a great positioning it's 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 brilliant and you know what he does that i think is so great in which i think is absent a lot in this sort of participatory journalism that you see now is that there's not that cloying smugness no. that you get in a lot of essays and he's funny because he's a failure at some of this stuff too right. he's not better than these people he's just involved with them no. um and that i think that's where his intellect comes into play and i think that's it's that there's a Hunter S. Thompson line that this is devolved from, but there's also sort of a Joan Didion line that this is devolved sure. from. And then there's just David Foster Wallace, you know, that this idea of this, what we know about him now, it's incomprehensible to imagine David Foster Wallace on a cruise ship. Yeah. But then, you know, everyone's personal lives, they do things that you don't expect them but to do. But he opens up in such a clear way, too. I mean, like, what the, the narrative arc if there is really one, you know, besides the actual... Because he says right up front, nothing happens on this cruise. Like, he right. said, basically, it was a typical... The, you know that there's no disaster that's going to happen on this cruise. There's no... He's not going right. to fall in love. It's not going to sink. There's nothing... He says up front, like, these are all the things I did. And he lists them. And and then... But he does go through the, this arc of um, kind of despair, you know, that he describes... Mm-hmm. You know, he describes himself as feeling being filled with despair from the beginning of the trip... But, you know, he, he, he spends a lot of time discussing how these cruises are manufactured and how, how, how they um, advertise and aim the experience towards a certain, like, American sense of pleasure and relaxation and pampering. And if there is any sort of narrative arc to this, it's that he reaches the point by, like, day five of the cruise where he 
is starting to feel that pamper and that want. And mm-hmm. then, and he's, you know, all the things that at the first five days he was experiencing, he would write about with kind of a little bit of, you know, like, God, this is what people care about. They care about clean toilets and, yeah. you know, folded <laughs> sheets. And my room is cleaned every 30 seconds and the food is delicious. And then he reaches that point, like on day five, where he kind of has this crisis where he realizes he's starting to complain about the fact that his room wasn't cleaned quick enough and that right. the sandwich crust right. was a little soggy. And he just talks about it as this sort of er American inside of him, this like infant that he feels inside of him that will never be satisfied. And that the biggest lie that these cruise ships give, they sell us on is that we ever could be satisfied, that you could ever have enough physical comfort and enough alcohol, enough winning at the game or enough entertainment or enough pleasurable experiences to finally be satisfied enough to say, I don't want any more. And that's Mm -hmm. a brilliant insight. And he builds to that so perfectly and his position as an insider who gets, or I'm sorry, as an outsider who gets caught up in it is is just wonderful. And, 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 and I think going back to what you were saying, Todd, it's like his, his humility and his ability to say, I'm completely the wrong guy to be in this experience. Yeah. That's what really works. You know, that's what mm-hmm. sort of makes it happen where you go, okay, you're, you're not just a smug guy judging these people. You got caught up in it too, because why wouldn't you? And we can all relate to that. Uh, but the thing though that hangs over this thing, obviously with David Foster Wallace and everything is death. And, and know. you know, it because we so know hard in the beginning of this essay, because he describes his, him as he, he describes himself as a person of despair and he does it right. so eloquently that all I can And he think talks of about the like, kid who killed himself on a, on a boat. Yeah. Which kind um, of never gets re- mentioned again, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's classic. Whenever somebody commits, or a writer commits suicide, we all just see suicide in everything that they mm-hmm. wrote, and it's so well, true. Well, and I, yeah, it's it is so true, but we can't. The only thing we can do with that information is realize that we have an amazing glimpse into the mind of someone who eventually killed themselves. You know, not that any of these things were necessarily directly related, but w- what I think also makes this essay work so well that we haven't really described yet because his themes are so huge and depressing and so ambitious is that this is one of the funniest things I've ever read yes, it's in hysterical. my entire life. And it is also one of the, he's so smart, but his, the language that he uses vacillates wildly between like very high language and very low language. Yeah. Um, I think intentionally, too. Mm-hmm. Anytime he's getting too, of course, everything he does is intentional, but anytime he's getting too formal or maybe losing the audience or seeming snobby, he'll intentionally throw in really, really casual speech. So here, I just like, I this is an old star from something I thought was funny, you know, five years ago when I first read this, and I still think it's funny. So let's read it. This is a footnote. He just mentions... The venue here is Deck 11's Fleet Bar, and then there's footnote 111. 111. The Fleet Bar was also the site of elegant tea time later that same day, where elderly female passengers wore long white stripper gloves and pinkies protruded from cups, (laughs) and were among my breaches of elegant tea time etiquette apparently were. So, from this, we already know that he went to elegant tea time for some reason, which as I mentioned before. A, imagining people would be amused by my tuxedo design t-shirt I wore because I hadn't taken seriously the celebrity brochure's instruction to bring a real tux on the cruise. B, imagining the elderly ladies at my table would be charmed by the 
off-color Rorschach jokes I made about the rather obscene shapes that the linen <laughs> napkins at each place were origami folded into. C, imagining these same ladies might be interested to learn what sorts of things have to be done to a goose over its lifetime in order to produce pate-grade liver. D, putting a three-ounce mass of what looked like glossy black buckshot on a big white cracker and then putting the whole cracker in my mouth. E, assuming one second thereafter a facial expression I'm told was even under even the most charitable interpretation, inelegant. And that goes on all the way oh to, well, there's F, F1, F2, G, H, and then, and then fine, I'll just skip it all. And then it says... Let us draw the curtain of charity over the rest of that particular bit of managed fun. This will, at any rate, explain the 1,600-hour to 1,700-hour lacuna in today's P&D log. Yeah. So that is just a footnote. And for E.B. White, that would have been the whole entire essay. Right. <laughs> well, he always That's does that, though. His footnotes end up being the, the, the funniest, sort of most gossipy sections that, you know, yes, they're not officially yeah. part of the essay. But then what I love about this essay in particular is that he references things that he said in the footnotes in the main essay later. And if right. you didn't read the footnote, you you yeah, missed it. It makes no it. sense. And and you can still keep going, but you're like, wait, wait, what happened at the elegant tea time? Or who, wait, who was Mona again? <laughs> and you realize that the footnotes are, of course, absolutely essential, and they're sometimes the funniest parts. Um, I remember I gave my dad a David Foster Wallace essay years ago. It's one about the English language, which is an amazing essay. And uh, oh, yes. my dad didn't had never read Foster Wallace, so he, he, he got back to me. He was like, I love the essay. We talked about it. And then he wrote me another email being like, I went back and read all the footnotes. Oh, my God. I was like, how could you have skipped? He thought he could skip the footnotes, you know, because, of course, usually you don't think of footnotes as an essential element to an essay. But with David Foster right. Wallace, most of the time, those end up being the funny, the funniest counterpoint to the story or the most juicy tidbit. He has two kind of uses of the footnotes. The other really famous essay that's in this collection is called Getting Away from Already Pretty Much Being Away from It All. Uh, about going to a state fair in Indiana. And in that one, th so they're very different. In, in the one that we read, the serious themes are the essay and the footnotes are the gossipy parts, as you said. Um, but in the other one, it's reversed. It's he's writing a light essay and in the footnotes, he's going through an insane mental struggle mm -hmm. with the morality of over what he's doing. And of course he like, in all his writing, he does both in both. But it's really interesting to think of, you know, what role do the footnotes serve in which essays and how does that reflect what he's actually thinking about? I love the footnotes because they are so indicative of how we actually think. You know, how often are you midway through a long sentence and then you, your brain spins out to something else, your own all footnote. You, all you got to do back. is listen to any episode of this show and that... It's, it's like one living footnote. Clearly, the way we operate. Well, and I, but I think the thing about the footnotes also is that, but and related to what you're saying, Julie, is it's it to me when reading this essay and reading his other essays that are heavily footnoted, I think it is the the best representation also of someone with profound anxiety, right. you yes. know, and and oh, profound sure. emotional issues. Because it's almost like splitting your personality. It's like splitting the voices exactly. in your head into two different or three different or four different or five, and it just keeps going and spinning out of control. Right. Know? There's so many levels of genius at work in this essay that I've never felt like I got all that I could from it right. every time that I've read it. I want it. to talk about, too, just the genius of or his ability to just evoke detail and use story and detail in, in 
really so regardless of whether this is because this does use a footnote but regardless of that structure i just couldn't believe how brilliant this little section was he's describing a guy the lecture's audience consists of bald solid thick-wristed <laughs> men over 50 oh he's describing guys i guess a, a group of guys the lecture's audience consists of bald, solid, thick-wristed men over 50 who all look like the kind of guy who rises to CEO a company out of that company's engineering department instead of some <laughs> fancy MBA program. Now, that's brilliant. As if that's not yes. specific enough, there's a footnote, 114, and he describes the footnote this way. In other words, the self-made, brass-balled, no-bullshit type of older U.S. male whom you least want the dad to turn out to be when you go over to a girl's house to take her to a movie or something with dishonorable intentions rattling around in the back of your mind. An er-authority figure. It's like he was able to take us from like the MBA program, the engineering department guy, and then also describe this personal relationship to how intimidated he felt around these types of guys by related to dating girl. It was just like, there are so many directions that he's going and each one of them is perfect and evocative and just brilliant. And it's like, wow, you did four different descriptions of these guys and each one is perfect and belongs there and, and, and gives me the full picture. And you included them all. Yeah, right. and he should have because they yeah. each add another layer to it. And it was like, for me, it really wasn't until I got to that idea of the, the dad, you don't want it to turn out to be answering the door when you're going out with a girl like that hit me. So that was what it took, you know, cause that's the story that was my most, like my entry point, but it's just, he does that all the time. Well, I think the, the idea of vacation though is, is a really strange thing when you think about it. it, is. it it's really, it's, it's, it's taking a break from your actual life. It's mm -hmm. putting aside every real stress and anger and sadness or whatever for X period of time and compartmentalizing all that stuff at your house and going somewhere else to forget about it only to return to have those same problems waiting for you. <laughs> and it's, it's something basically that he talks about when he talks about despair and about how despair is a real thing for him and how he basically in life has wanted to jump overboard. But the mere idea of vacation in and of itself is something that I've always been fascinated by. This and, and Always well, I, I'd love to go on vacation, but I, then I'm freaked out by it. And I live in a resort town, so I sort of see it all the time. Is You know, you, you go into a hotel, and these people are nice to you, and they do things for you. But, of course, that's their job, which means they're not on vacation, which means they go home, and they're pissed off, and they're angry, and they're underpaid. And they've had to deal with your whiny ass who's being delivered everything on a platter, literally in some cases. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it, this whole experience of a hotel or a resort or a cruise ship where it's an imaginary world as much or more so than going to Disneyland is, where people are there. I've never been comfortable in that situation. I am <laughs> it's, it's a very strange thing. And I can thing. never relax. And, I, you know, of course, as an adult, you just find yourself in that situation a lot because, you know, someone takes you on a trip or you go on a trip with someone and that's what they mm -hmm. want. And then, like, oh, I just hate it so much. <laughs> I'd so much prefer yeah. a journey of some kind, like with a goal right. or, like, you know, just where you have, you know, oh, you can still have good meals and stuff, but you got to find them yourself or cook them or, you know, figure something out. I, I just, the, the, the like, all-inclusive, all paid-for kind of nothing's going to happen to you, you never have to think about anything kind of trip, just completely uninteresting to me. The same way it is to David Foster Wallace. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons, I think. So you basically, so you basically, you are David Foster trip. Wallace. I want an all-exclusive trip. <laughs> No, I mean, I like showing up in a city or a town or a country and having no idea where I'm staying, what's happening. And it's a lot more stressful and it's a lot more work. And of course, as I get older, it gets harder and harder. You know, it's a struggle. But like the last trip, the last great trip I took was to New Zealand, which was just going there, getting a camper van 
and having no plan because it's like i know i'm gonna mm-hmm. sleep in this van so i can sleep wherever i need to and we can just drive around and see things you know like that's my dream vacation mm-hmm. i think yeah i i totally agree with you i think i'm on the same vacation journey as you are Ryder. but i also am into to go back to E.E. White for a second, I'm now more into the ritual vacation. I, I mean, like I that just idea, came back too. Yeah. This mm. morning from the same Labor Day weekend that I've been going to with my the same group of friends for, I think, seven years. None of us have any idea how many years That's it great. is. Oh, my gosh. And that is great. That's the best thing about it. And it's we don't do anything, pretty much. We do puzzles and we go swimming. Greg brought Legos this time. But, you know... The ritual vacation is a whole different beast of mm-hmm. knowing that you will enact, you know, whatever behaviors and you know what it's going to be like. And I, I was just thinking this time, it rained most of the time this time, and I didn't care. I didn't feel that vacation pressure at all yeah. because I knew that I would be back next year and it would be nice. That's great. See, I, I, like a, I like a luxury vacation and I like a we don't know what we're going to do thing. But there's there for me, there's a real um, desire not to have to talk to anybody right. when I'm on vacation. And to have things done for me. And you have to deal with a lot. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, gotta, I have to do it a lot. And so, you know, there, to me, there's a great allure of even just being somewhere and knowing that I can pick up a phone and people will bring me food. That is fucking awesome. <laughs> 24-7, bring me fucking food. Yeah. And bring me some whipped cream. It doesn't go with anything that I've ordered, but I'd like some whipped cream. Um, but by the same token, like next week, for instance. You're a tyrant. I am a tyrant. <laughs> next week, my, my wife and I are, Wendy and I are going on a road trip to uh, to Colorado. And we're stopping and staying in little towns. And the only thing we planned is to make sure we knew that there was a hotel and wherever we were going to go. But we don't know what we're going to do. And that has its own allure. Yeah. But more importantly, we should each tell a horror story from our own cruise ship experiences. So I think we were only on the boat for three days, in my recollection. And we went to the park first. And my family's all super lovely. So um, the major element of it, though, was that I was 17 and my brother and sister were... So that would have made them 12 and 13. And then my cousins were also 12 and, like, 9. So I was the lone teenager in oh, this pack. Oh, that's tough. Trapped on a, on a boat. So, And I had just, just broken up with my very long time, two-year high school, like, cool boyfriend. Oh. So I, I, I recall very distinctly, like, moping around, wandering into like an 18 year olds and un, like 16 to 18 year olds dance and just oh, having no. a social hell from which I, oh, that, Tony Braxton playing behind hell. you breathe that's again hell. breathe um, again <laughs> perfect song choice by the way I think cruise ships would make me feel lonely and trapped no matter what but combined with my teenage emotional state it's like i will always think of them that way you and i had such similar experiences julia like (laughs) mine i had i i i was definitely the mopey one like oh my god i did two years in a row and let me describe my horrible this is awful okay let me just say for the record i was always as a teenager incredibly i i was an actor and i was very happy with acting and like what i was doing but i was always very uncomfortable with fame and i was very uncomfortable with like the type of fame that i had which was this sort of teen magazine you know cover 
fame where it was like based on, you know, like, oh, looks and what pizza toppings I like and, you know, just kind of crap that like I never felt, you know, because I was a teenager who wanted to be taken seriously and, you know, I wanted to be important. Yeah. Okay. So that's the backstory. I got asked to participate in a charity event, which meant I would go on a cruise. It was called Sail with the Stars. And essentially, it was to raise money for, you know, a cause. It was different both years. I'm not going to remember specific causes, but they were, you know, children's medical uh, um, conditions or, you know, very terminal illness, like very, you know, noble sort of causes. And they would basically offer me and my entire family a chance to go on a cruise for free. And, you know, my parents, I was 13 the first year, and my parents were like, let's do this. This will be so much fun. We'll all get to go on a family vacation for five days. And I was like, okay. Little did I know that this meant that basically rich kids could have their parents pay to go on a cruise with people like me and Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Andrew Keegan. And, you know, it was basically it was mostly about teen magazine boys like that were on the cover of these magazines on a boat. And these people had paid for the privilege to be on a boat locked on a ship with them. Oh, my God. And so that is the most this evil is the, genius this is, idea. And to writer, make money. you need to write an I know, essay I should. about I this. I mean, I, it's one of those things I don't really talk about because honestly, I've repressed it in so many ways. Because the true horror is not only did I do it the first year, but then the next year they offered me to come back again, and I was like, "I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this." And my mom looked at me, and my mother is like so not the guilt tripping type, and has never put pressure on me. This is the only time she ever put like this kind of pressure on me. She's like. Your grandparents have always wanted to go on a cruise, and they've oh. offered to pay for them to go this year. <laughs> oh and my grandparents my were, you know, oh at that God. point in their late 70s. And so I said, okay, I'll go again if I can bring a friend. And so I brought a friend with me, and it was off. It, it, was, it was even worse that year because by then I was 14. I had discovered Counting Crows, <laughs> and uh, I would just sit around listening to my headphones, <laughs> pissed off that I had to be here and deal with all these people because the events that they organized for us were not like, because they were like signings where we'd sit and, and sign autographs all day long. They were like talent shows where we would judge the kids' talents and give them feedback. All that stuff I could kind of handle. But every night there was some event that I had to go to and I had to get up on stage while they had hired an entertainment company to run this, like, crew, all these events. And it's one of these entertainment companies that does, like, you know, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, or weddings, or whatever, where there's, like, ten, like, really, really fit guys and ten really, really fit women. And they're all dancers, and they're all like, everybody, clap your hands! Come on! Everybody get up! And then they, like, teach you a new dance. Everybody who wants to do the Macarena. And they make everybody do, like, it, you know, those people, oh, like, God. paid for, with like... people or something? People that are paid for their spunk, you know, and to, like, uh, initiate, like... I got paid for my spunk exactly. in college, but that was so, something different. So that was that was the entertainment, but what they would do is bring poor me and my brother, Shiloh, who was also, you know, an actor at the time, and Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Andrew Keegan oh, and all these other God. people, they would bring us up and make us dance in front of people. Oh, so no, it was always like, no. let's hear it for Ryder! What, what? And then like spotlight on me on a stage in front of a thousand people. And I don't oh, dance. I'm not God. a guy who likes dancing. <laughs> I hate hip-hop music. And there I am, like, having to do this and prostitute myself so my grandparents could go on a cruise. And then I would go back to my room and put on my 
Van Morrison and cry, and it would just feel so self-indulgent. And then, like, my one friend who I brought on the cruise with me completely loved it, and she was, like, so into the whole dancing and cruise thing. So I got abandoned by my one friend the whole week. And I just cried. I was just miserable, and I was just this lonely, pissed-off teenager. Like, it was the worst experience. And then I just felt like I was screwing my career over, because everyone kept telling me, like, you know, all the people that worked the cruise were upset with me for not going to events and not taking this seriously. And so reading David Foster Wallace, it was like, okay, I'm not crazy for having these feelings about this world. (laughs) It's okay to judge these people a little bit, because I still carry around this feeling like I was this, you know, and I was, I was a teenager, but whatever. So that's my very long, you know. That's Uh, that's the saddest image. I just have this image of, like, you and Jonathan Taylor Thomas, like, miserable hiding in a closet somewhere. I'm sure it was the same for all of of you. Oh, no, there's... There's somewhere on the internet VHS video of Ryder dancing alone in the spotlight on a stage. Yes, there is. On the Lido I Lounge. I had to do it. I couldn't fucking, I couldn't avoid it half the time. It was oh, like, God. Oh, oh. That's horrible. I'm that sorry. That is horrible, Ryder. <laughs> God. Awesome. Yeah. So, my story is not as terrible. Thank fucking God. <laughs> so, uh... My first cruise, I went on a cruise with my uh, girlfriend that I had in college at the time, whose name was Cindy. And uh, Cindy, you know, kept saying how really cool and nice our waiter was, who was this gorgeous Croatian Serb dude. And at the time, I like, I didn't pay attention to the fact that she kept wanting to like do stuff after I went to bed. Like, oh, you know what? Oh, I'm no. gonna go. I'm gonna go dancing because I didn't really like to dance. She's like, so I'm. Gonna, I'm just gonna go to the club. Is that cool? I was like, yeah, that's cool. We're in a totally committed relationship. Absolutely. Oh my god. Yeah, go dance. No. And so I, I wasn't thinking about this stuff at the time. Um, and the cruise it was a three day cruise to Mexico, which I mentioned earlier. So you leave LA, you go to Ensenada, you go see you know some blowhole, and then you come back. And so we got back from this dreadful cruise, and like two weeks later, she says, oh, you know what? The same ship, the Viking Serenade, is um, coming back into port, and so I had such a good time with you. Me and two of my girlfriends are going to go on the same cruise. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, that's that's a great idea. You should absolutely do that. And then she did that, and she came back. She's like, oh, my God. You're never going to guess. I saw our waiter was on the cruise, too. I was like, oh, what a coincidence. And then it wasn't for like... 15 years and I was like oh oh she was fucking him that's that's what happened on that cruise oh my god she was fucking that guy and then she went back wait are you sure did you ever actually get oh and then her friends didn't end up going on the cruise though she was like I just ended up going by myself because Stacy or whatever her girlfriend's name was couldn't go on the cruise too and like you know 1992 I was like "Yeah, yeah whatever hand me another schlitz and uh it was only many, many years later that I realized, oh, yeah, so she was fucking that guy. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think yeah. that's what happened to him. And then, well, that's, uh, that's really weird. What creeps me out about that idea is that she just, the boat keeps coming back. Yeah, that's know? all it does. It, it just and goes back and forth. all she has to do is get back on it to yeah. continue her affair. Well, it seems we have devolved far, far away. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our, is our footnote. Not really. For... Those were our summer vacation essays from, yes. you know, they're just yeah. 15 years later. Well, that was great. Thanks, guys. And everybody go read more essays. Yeah, and we'll, if, if you guys need links to these, we'll post them up on our Facebook. You know what we should do, boys and girls? We should post up photos of ourselves as young people on summer vacation if we have them. Put them on our Facebook. Oh, gosh. Okay. I'll do All that, right. too. I can do that. Alright. Alright. 
that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss the play Cock by Michael Bartlett. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literarydisco. Follow us on Twitter, at literarydisco. And check out our Goodreads page for, among other things, the ongoing Finnegan's Wake Up Challenge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>